Abba Father, thank you for what you're teaching us. Thank you for wisdom and the grace of, of how you relate to us. Uh, Lord, did you open up our eyes to really see how your son, Jesus Christ, modeled for us what it means to live out the esteem granted him, how that would apply to us, how we can live out the esteem you grant us. Would you please teach us your ways and to help us to love you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want to introduce one thing before we jump in. This is an ego defense. It's called splitting. It's one of the more popular ego defenses that were developed by Sigmund Freud. And then his daughter, Anna, really developed this. And and her, her contribution is tremendous. Here's what splitting is. First of all, to get splitting, you have to get the, the, con- the moral construct of a child. Okay? Children th- see things in very simple, pure terms, even concrete, literal terms. For example, in the child's mind, this is how they think about morality. Good people do good things. Because good people do good things, good things happen to them. This is how children think, Right? Bad people do bad things. And because bad people do bad things, bad things happen to them. Does this make sense? I I think we all probably feel that, right? And so that's how children think. In fact, how do we raise our children? You know, mommies will say, if you learn to obey mommy and do what's right, things will be easier for you today, right? You know, just obey mommy and things go well. And if you do your, pick up your toys, you get the Cheeto, or you get whatever the, the treat is, or uh, if you want to watch uh, Puffin Rock or, or some cool children's show, then you've got to finish your spinach. And so children get this idea, this moral construct in their brains that good people do good things, and because of that, good things happen. Bad people do bad things, and bad things happen to those people. Makes sense? It kind of is a perfect little moral system. It makes sense. In fact, it makes so much sense to us as adults that we struggle that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And now we have a moral problem because all of a sudden, Jerry, everything was nice and neat and a nice package. Good things for good people, bad things for bad people. Then all of a sudden, God messes it up because he causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And all of a sudden we go, God is not fair. Why does he let good things happen to bad people? And why does he let bad things happen to good people? And we begin to really struggle with that. So because of that, we have an ego defense. And that is Greek. It's right out of the Greek New Testament. And it just literally means self-defense. It means somebody's throwing a punch at me and I'm going to block it or I'm going to duck. I'm going to do something to protect my heart. My self-emotion, hey, Karen, I'm going to do something to protect my soul. And so I have self-defense tactics, ego defense, and one of them is to split. And when you split, you take the person that you don't like, and you as judge and jury and verdict assign them to the bad room. You're a bad person. You do bad things. You get bad things to you. So you're going to the bad room, and I don't like you. And when you're in the bad room inside my soul, come to think of it, everything about you is bad. You're all bad when you're in the bad room. But then people are in the good room. You go, I love you. You're just so special. And when you're in the good room, you're all good. Come to think of it, you've never done anything to offend me. So you're good. And I put you in the good room. And I relate to you well. I don't want to, who wants to go to the bad room? So when you put people in the bad room, you lock the door and you walk away. 
And you begin to isolate people. And you cut them off. Eye contact changes. Things change. That's called splitting. Makes sense. It's an ego defense that we engage because we don't want to be hurt anymore. And it's based on how children understand morality. And then we as adults, when we, we develop the, con- the, the, the abstract world of the adults, we get real frustrated because God lets good things happen to the bad and bad things happen to the good, and we don't like that. It doesn't line up. So one way we protect ourselves is by splitting and just putting people, or sometimes even we can put God in the bad room. All right, now that you know that, hold on to that because we're going to come back to it pretty soon. All right, <clears throat> so what's the evidence that Jesus Christ really lived out the, the esteem that God granted him? What's some evidence about that? Well, look at this in Mark. Jesus was confident that he was worthy of being followed. In other words, Daniel, if he said, hey, you, drop the nets, follow me. Let's go. They did. He expected that. He expected those who, whom he called to follow. He expected it. There was something going on inside of him that he knew was so compelling and worthy of being followed that when he asked somebody to follow, they did. There's Mark 1, 16 to 20 to support that. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 20, immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. He expected that to happen. Look at this second one. Jesus and the disciples went without food, without being hangry. There's a reference in Mark that they, the author giving a narrative comment says, for there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. Can you imagine working so hard, being so busy for so long that you didn't have time to eat? Now, if we're not careful, okay, and whether you're, you're a guy or a girl, you can get hangry and it's kind of a funny idea. We laugh about being hangry, but something really does happen in the brain when you're denied carbohydrates. All right? It really happens. You're a nurse, right? It happens in the brain. You deny the brain carbohydrates long enough, and you become a little primal because it's time for food, and you don't see the food, or you can't get to the food, and you really do get angry. All right? You get grouchy, snappy, and you're going to start you know, kind of pitching your little fit to get your way because you're hungry. That's a normal part of the brain, how the brain works with the body. It makes sense. It's called metabolism, and it, it's just a real thing. But... What's not cool is when you think because you're hungry, it gives you a license to be a jerk. That's not good. That's not good, right? So just an example that these guys have been a part of some things that are uh, exhausting. We don't know how many days they, they had been working and getting surrounded and mobbed by people and getting jostled about and touched and everybody bringing sick, folk, sick people and everybody yelling who's going to get first and just how aggressive crowds can be when, when something's for free and it's like life-changing. Crowds can get a little rough, can't they? All right? Uh, like the store in, in Europe that decided to put their Nutella on sale like for a couple bucks when it's normally seven bucks. They almost had a riot. And they, they had to, remember that? They had to ration it out because they were being mobbed, right? Well, can you imagine your son or daughter is mentally retarded or demon-possessed or some horrible thing happens and you get to go to get a free healing without even having to go to children's hospital? Can you imagine? You think you'd do a little pushing and shoving to see who's going to get to the healer? Sure. 
Can you imagine the exhaustion of the, that these guys are dealing with? No food. Might be a little moody. Might get a little cranky, right? Maybe some anger. Jesus could serve even to the point of exhaustion and hunger and not be mad about it and not go into a pouting phase. Jesus, this is heavy stuff here. Jesus received gifts and affection without shaming the givers. There are some people whose self-esteem is so damaged. Some of you are grinning. Your self-esteem is so damaged, you can't receive a gift. You struggle with it like you're not worthy or something. Something like that. And it's really a damaged, it's a part of a damaged soul. Okay. And by the way, on our splitters, what if you put yourself in the bedroom? And after all, if you're in your bedroom, you're not worthy of a gift, are you? And affection. Can you see the difficulty? Some people who just can't seem to accept that their worth is based on God and that God really does love them. And they even put themselves in the bad room. Jesus received gifts, even affection, without shaming the giver. Boy, that's a powerful example that he was living out the esteem his father granted him. How about this one? He kept his relationship with his mother in perspective. He kept his relationship with his mom and also his dad in perspective, but particularly his mom. A crowd was sitting around him and his siblings said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. He answered them and he said, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother, my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. He put his mom and dad in perspective. So a great time to ask a question. Men, have you gotten past your mommy yet? <laughs> have you? Ladies, you gotten past your daddy yet? Have you learned where you derive your ultimate worth? Men, it's not from mommy. Girls, not from daddy. Jesus Christ lived out the esteem his father granted him. <clears throat> Jesus wasn't emotionally derailed when people laughed at him. It's an amazing story, uh, verse 38 of the text. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion, people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. Now, this is not a laugh like, ha great joke, Jesus. Boy, you, you can really drop the punchline. No, they're mocking him. It's a mocking laugh. They're giving him public open shame. They're laughing at him. But look what he does. He puts them all out. Can you see him? Right, they're laughing. Ha ha, look at the fool. You know, he thinks the girls, come on. And Jesus got him on the back. Come on, I, I understand how funny it is. Let's go outside. Come on, go outside. And he scoots everybody outside except for the parents and some folk. And watch what happens. Um, Taking a child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which is Aramaic, and we get her, the author gives us a translation, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk. Beautiful. But he didn't go, why are you laughing at me? I really am Jesus. Why can't you believe me? Stop mocking. You hurt my feelings when you laugh at me. He didn't do any of that stuff. He just said, okay, ha, ha. Everybody out. Everybody out in the house. Let's go. He scooted everybody out. He wasn't emotionally derailed. Did what he was supposed to do. 
And then guess what? The laughing stopped. He was way above the laughter. And man, I got to tell you something about bullying. Just a quick comment. Uh, Bullies know when they get you. They know it. They can smell blood, right? And so the minute you start letting the laughter get you and derail you, they smell blood and they're going to give you more. But if you can have, find that your esteem is granted and based on something far above your peers, you can rise above it and all of a sudden the laughter means nothing. The mocking doesn't mean anything anymore. Does that make sense? Okay. This is more evidence that he lived out the esteem his father granted him. This is amazing stuff here. Uh, Jesus slept in a boat and walked on water during storms. I need to give you some stuff. Um, this is important for those of you who are, who are uh, kind of geography buffs and things. I think you're going to appreciate this. Here's some things about, hey, about the, uh, the geography of the Sea of Galilee that you appreciate. First of all, the Sea of Galilee, ready, is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. It is almost 700 feet below sea level. All right? And because it's a temperate zone, it has moisture, humidity, around 65% humidity all the time. All right? And it'll have an average temperature about 88 degrees uh, in August and around just under 60 degrees in the coldest time of the year. So it's warm and moist air because it's so low in what is called the Jordan Rift, the Jordan Valley Rift, which is just like a giant trench that runs through this area, okay? It's surrounded by mountains, all right? Now, Jerry, the Golan Heights, you may remember the Golan Heights. The mountains on the east, the Golan Heights, 2,000 feet above sea level. You see what's going on right now? 700 feet below sea level to the east, 2,000 feet above sea level, cold, dry air comes pouring over the, the, through the mountain ranges. And when it hits that rift, it slams down and collides with that hot, moist air and a storm hits that is crazy. March 1992, 10-foot waves came crushing in on the town of Tiberias right on, uh, on the borders of the lake. That's in 1992, 10-foot waves. Now, guess what? The Sea of Galilee is around 140 to 200 feet deep. It's a very shallow lake, really shallow. Because it's so shallow, the, the, the weather systems can actually move that water really efficiently, okay? And when the water's deep, the kinetics of water and how molecules bind make it, you have to have a lot more force to move that kind of water. But when it's shallow, you can move a lot of water fast with those storms. And so the bottom line is, that lake can be hammered in a matter of minutes when a storm system comes up and over that front, comes through the Golan Heights from the east and slams the top of the lake. Do you understand how intense this is? Okay. And fatalities are not uncommon. Okay. So that being the case, watch this. So uh, verse 37, and there arose a fierce gale wind. In other words, th- this is hammering down on the lake in minutes. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much the boat was already filling up. We're talking about at risk for capsizing. And Jesus is asleep 
in the stern on a cushion. All right, lock it down. You got it? Look at the Matthew 14 story. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. This is a different story. Go ahead of him to the other side. And while he sent the crowds away, after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Again, another storm system rolling off those mountains and coming down and hammering the top of the lake. Okay, the guys are already in another dangerous situation. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. What I want you to see is a key principle that Jesus Christ had the ability to sleep during a severe storm and he had the ability to walk on the water during a severe storm. Okay, he wasn't walking on a, a flat, it wasn't a flat calm when he was walking on the water in this beautiful, pristine, hallmark kind of moment, you know, with, with some beautiful duck calls in the background or a lake loon as he's walking quietly among the lily. No, there was a fierce storm going on and he's walking on those waves. Wow. So here's what comes up. This is what I want you to appreciate. And we're going to, get, we're going to refer back to splitting at this time. Let me read to you some scriptures. This is from, um, from Job, which is really a powerful story. Job uh, had lost so many family members. His wife began to curse him. She said, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Ooh, splitting. Why is it that we think we can only take good things from God? And why can't we accept adversity from God? Isaiah 45, verse 7. I am the one forming light and creating darkness. I cause well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. That's tough. Because some of us in our faith, if we could be honest, in our faith, we're still very childlike. We have this construct that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And we like that moral construct. And the idea that God can let some pretty bad things happen to us, mm, we struggle with that. We struggle. But it's important to realize that Jesus Christ he lived out the esteem his father, his father granted him to such a degree that he could trust the good that came from God and the bad that came from God. In other words, let me put it simply. Jesus settled that God was trustworthy. Because he was trustworthy, he was worthy of trust, he could accept whatever happened. Randy, you and I have talked about that. Randy gets things about faith. If it went good, if it was a bad day, God is still good. If it's a good day, God is still good. Makes sense. Sometimes we get tripped up and we're splitters and we're not even aware of it. And we can be pretty mad at God and have a kind of floating bitterness because we don't think God's, going to, God's doing a good job running the universe. Makes sense. Jesus lived out the esteem his father granted him and he proved it by being able to sleep during a storm or walk on the water during a storm. 
the kind of storm that would scare sailors to death. That kind of stress. Not I'm having a bad hair day stress. Okay, all right. Just a couple more here. There we go. I want to be quick on these two just for the sake of time. Jesus was emotionally and morally so secure in his relationship with his father that he valued women and outcasts from God's perspective, not man's. For example, the scene with the woman at the well, you have to understand how questionable that scene was. Women belonged in three areas. Women had jurisdiction over men in three areas. Number one, the home. Okay? Having babies, raising babies. When mom's in the house, mom rules. Number one. Number two, the market, where women have to shop. Number three, the well. The well. Those are three zones that women, as female persons, had jurisdiction over males. Okay? According to Jewish custom, if there were Jewish males at a well and they saw a woman coming, what do the men do? They leave. That's her, this is her zone. Leave. Leave. For a man to stay at the well is what? It's very suggestive. Okay. Now the woman who does come to the well, when does she come to the well? When? Why? Because she's a harlot. <laughs> right. And it's the shameful part of a day for a woman to go get water. It's not the honorable. Intelligent, honorable women go and it's cool in the morning. Right? So the very fact that he didn't leave the well at that hour of the day with that kind of woman coming would be perceived as a very questionable move on Jesus' part. Very morally questionable. But guess what? Because Jesus Christ saw her and valued her from God's perspective, guess what? It wasn't an issue. He was so emotionally and, and morally secure in his relationship with his father that he could value women and value outcasts, the blind, lepers, I don't care what the issues are, tax collectors, liars, thieves, drunks, the worst of the worst, the, bottom, the moral bottom of the barrel. He was so secure in himself that he could have time with them and it virtually be a God thing. He was dealing with them from God's perspective, not from a secular perspective, not from somebody caught up in peer pressure. He also shared responsibilities with his disciples. When they were hungry, he told them, you feed them. And I love that, you feed them. So um, Jesus protected the Holy Spirit. I think this is amazing. He was healing, and some of the religious leaders said he was going insane. And the scribes, who really were experts in the scripture, they said, well, he's possessed by Satan himself, Beelzebul. He's possessed by Satan himself. And Jesus says to them, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. By the way, that's probably like the lowest thing you could say to him. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself, he is divided. He cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man 
and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So, you ready? Buckle up. Jesus Christ knew how to fight for the Holy Spirit. He knew how to protect and fight for the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, let me push you just a bit here. When, remember, we talked about self-esteem, which is really, there's really no such thing as self-esteem, because what that means is I am valuing myself how you see me. So if you see me as a good man, then I must be a good man. I'm a good man because you see me that way. But if you see me as a bad man, then I must be a bad man. It's called, it's like a type of addiction where you live for the approval of other people and you live to impress people. Let me drop something serious on you guys, okay? People pleasers are powerless people. People pleasers are powerless people. They can't handle the crowd. And because they're people pleasers, they have to condone and go along. Right? But because Jesus Christ was so consumed with the will of his Father, he is able to go against the crowd to, to his very, very core, and he was able to protect the sacred Holy Spirit and warned that you can cuss me out, guys. You can say the most disrespectful things against me, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You could say the worst things you can come up with. The worst A, B, C, D, E, F, G you could ever imagine. And, it's, and it'll be forgiven you. But you say something blasphemous against the Spirit, and it will never be forgiven. Wow. How's that for protecting the Holy Spirit? Okay. And he was able to do that because he was living out the esteem his father granted him and he wasn't addicted to public opinion. Jesus Christ was not addicted to public opinion. The fact is, people pleasers are powerless people. They can't handle it. Jesus exposed man-made religion for what it was of man and not of God. There's a story about a woman she had hemorrhaged for 12 years. She could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. She was probably suffering from, by the way, uterine uh, fibroid tumors is probably what she had, okay? Now because of her condition, because of Jewish law, was she allowed to go to synagogue? Was she allowed to even be touched? No. She was unclean. You could go on. There's other stories about Jesus touching a leper. You don't touch lepers. And yet he did. Last one. Jesus forgave cruel, insensitive, heartless men. Um, when they had come to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. I'm sorry, one click back. There they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
and they cast lots and divided up his garments among themselves. Here's what I want you to appreciate. This right here, you know, I'm telling you, if you'll just live out the English text, you're fine. But it can really be helpful to know just a little bit of Greek, okay? I want you to appreciate this. Jesus was saying, in Greek, that verb means it's something he was repeating. He didn't just say it one time, okay? So get the image here. Do you have, those of you that are in medical sciences, do you have any idea the pain that Jesus was experiencing at this point? Okay. What is, what's going on with his body? The dehydration. He is in shock. Severe lacerations, most likely from his neck to his hamstrings. Severe laceration. Severe blood loss. What he's going through. He didn't just say it once, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He kept repeating that. He said it over and over again. Jesus forgave cruel, insensitive, and heartless men. Why did he do that? What, what was going on emotionally inside of him that let that even be possible? Well, it happened because he was living out the esteem his father granted him. All right, splitting. Guess what? If you're a splitter, it's awfully hard to forgive. Because you know what? You could put another word up for splitter. You know what it is? Grudge holder. (laughs) Grudge holder. You you, you split. You say, this person's bad. Off to the bedroom you go. And I'm going to keep you there. That's a grudge holder. Does that make sense? When you're a grudge holder and you're bitter... It's really, really hard to forgive people. It's really hard. You know? And when you're, when you're caught up in all that kind of junk, it's awfully hard to see people for who they are or see people from God's perspective. It's really hard to do that. Make sense? All right, here's the summary. These are the 12 statements we've co- we covered with, with supporting scriptures. I want to turn this over to you now. You're the gifted body of Christ. Jesus Christ lived out the esteem of his Father. What about us? What about about us as the church? What about us as individuals? You know, for example, uh, Jesus Christ fought for the Holy Spirit and he drew a line. He said, you know what? You can say a whole lot against me, but don't you dare say anything about the Holy Spirit. Um, let, me, let me show you how that has affected me in principle. There are occasions in which my daughters started to disrespect my wife, and guess what? They were disciplined by me. And they were disciplined not for being disrespectful to their mom. They were being disciplined because they were disrespectful to my wife, and you don't do that. Does it make sense? And by drawing a line and saying, you do not have a right to disrespect my wife. Or from Lisa's standpoint, you don't have a right or the privilege to disrespect my husband. Guess what you're building into your children? You're building into them integrity. You're building into them an honor code. And you're helping them to understand that there are some relationships that are sacred. Jesus modeled modeled that. You can say a whole lot about me, about my father, but you cannot say anything about the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. You can't do it. 
You're the body of Christ. Is there any evidence in your life that you are living out the esteem that Almighty God has granted you through His Son, Jesus Christ? If not, why not? (laughs) What does it take to make the jump, to dare to believe that God is worthy of trust, therefore He's trustworthy in both that which is good and that which is bad? If you have childlike thinking and you get this idea that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, and if anything messes that up, I don't like it, going to split, then your faith is going to be really, really fragile (laughs) because God causes his reign to fall in both the just and the unjust. He causes the sunrise on men who are good and men who are evil. So, what would it take for us to settle once and for all that our worth is based on what God says about us and to get past the addictions to public opinion? That's very mature of you. Very good. Someone else, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Are you good at receiving gifts? Can you receive one? Can you receive affection without being derailed? Can you give a gift? Not being derailed. We learned that a long time ago, Lee and I did, because someone um, was doing something one time, and we moved into that, oh, no, no, you know, whatever, and that person just looked at us and said, you're robbing me of a blessing. Absolutely, yeah. And I've never forgotten. 
Edie, um, here's my opinion, okay? Two cents and a cup of coffee. Sometimes Christians have serious self-esteem problems, very low self-esteem, and guess guess what? They put a different label on it to justify it. It's called humility. (laughs) And humility is, 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 what it really is, is low self-esteem. They just won't own it. And they're hiding behind a lot of garbage but they, well, I'm so humble. I'm not worthy. You know. When uh, when we were um, on staff in, with Crusade in the Philippines or Peru or whatever it is now, was it Oswald Chambers that ran the protest? The old ministry? Chambers. Chambers? Anyway, <laughs> one of those old saints that have written lots of books, he came, and I'll, I'll never forget this because he asked the question. He said, how many of you, and he used the word self-esteem. He said, how many of you um, have a healthy self-esteem? Mm-hmm. And you, you know, I mean, you kind of looked around the room and people were like going, you know, just a few people were like they were afraid to raise their hand because I do, this is the wrong answer. I'm prideful is, is exactly what, you know, they were thinking. And then he said, well, how many of you guys struggle with that? All these hands, you know, shot up like and we these were, are Jesus followers. Like we were really <laughs> proud of that. And he and, and I'll never forget. He said, while, while our hands were still up, he said, "Do you understand that that way of thinking is saying to God, you shortchanged me? You're not enough. <clears throat> Absolutely. And I absolutely. Whoa. And at that point in time, I mean, my hand went up because it was true of me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this whole thing of people pleasers and all that, I grew up never knowing who to be. I, I kind of surveyed the room, and I was who I needed to be to not sure. Sure. cross. Sure. You know, after a while, I just got to a place where I realized I didn't even know myself. I was just whoever I needed to be. Wow. And when I got, that was, that was a turning point for me when I just got so sick of, of having to be somebody different in every situation that, yeah, I, yeah. that it really, I really began that search for hmm. who, who's the real me. Wow. Well, wow. I, and, and I didn't go to scripture for that at, at the beginning. I just, sure, you sure. know, but when I, when I finally did, when I, when I decided who I was, and then I didn't like that at all. Didn't like that person. <laughs> I think that's what drove me as a as a follower of Christ to figure out what he said hmm. about me. Beautiful, beautiful. I want to tell you a story, and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up. Uh, a, a dear friend of mine, and they're active at Christ Church, I won't use their name, uh, struggled with a lot of self-esteem. And when they would go to work, there were a couple of peers that they competed against, and these peers would kind of laugh and mock and say things that were manipulative to this, this friend of mine. And uh, I would meet, and we'd have coffee and things, and that friend would be so upset because their self-esteem was being trampled on, right? 
and they couldn't understand and, these, and how to handle these. And I, I, I go home and I'm just got a migraine and I'm, and I'm frustrated with my, everybody in the house and all this stuff. And I, I began to work through this, this stuff, the difference between self-esteem and Christ-esteem. And I said, here's what I want you to do. And I gave him assignments on how to respond to the people that were mocking him. And he did. And he came back for the next meeting and he said, this is amazing. I, wow. And they responded so-and-so and I feel so much better. And they began to do it again and again and a couple others. And then guess what? They did it with, he did it with his boss. His boss. And he'd come into the boss and he had so much confidence. He'd say like, hey, think, things okay between us? Because there was a little goofiness out there and I got it untangled. And I know what, you know, I want to make sure we're on the same page. You okay? We're good to go? Get the work done today? And the boss would go, yeah. Yeah. Guess what? That friend of mine was just promoted into his boss's position. Wow. Above, every, above all the people that were mocking him. Because you know what he proved to his boss? That he could take it and he could be a problem solver instead of a problem maker, a problem sustainer. And all of a sudden this guy becomes, he, he, people pleasers are powerless. People pleasers are powerless. When you have the, the esteem God grants you, you now can see things from God's perspective and you can start cleaning up the mess. Does it make sense? I mean, this really is life-changing stuff. So, so don't answer rhetorical question. What's the evidence in your life that you are functionally living out the esteem and the worth that God grants you through his son, Jesus Christ. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. I want to pray for you. Abba Father, thank you for this morning. Would you please move that, that heart that, that the hurts are so deep they can't get themselves out of the bad room or they're unwilling to get certain people out of the bad room. They don't get the power of forgiveness. And because, because they're people pleasers and they've got the esteem of their peers, they're addicted to that, they, they can't handle life. Would you please break through that mess and would you reveal to them your unfailing love? Please. Teach us the wisdom of faith and hope and love. In Jesus' name, amen.